0: I'm Andy Ellsberg. I'm an uh, emergency room physician. I work at Providence, and I am dealing with COVID-19 in multiple ways. Over the last week, I haven't been working clinically um, just because of the way schedules worked out, and I've been working on some of the prep work as well as some of the advocacy in terms of uh, trying to help the state do the things that we need them to do to. Um, minimize spread, or at least slow it down. And starting tomorrow, I'm going to be working clinical shifts in the emergency room at Providence, um,
1: taking care of patients. So how is the Providence ER preparing to deal with the virus?
0: Let me say a couple things first. One is that um, I'm representing kind of my opinions on how things work. I'm not representing my group, which is Alaska Emergency Medicine Association. And, And And we are an independent contractor with the hospital. So I'm not representing the hospital with what I say. Not that anything I'm going to say is controversial or anything. It's all pretty straightforward. But I just want to make that kind of clear. Um, But uh, so the ER is getting ready in a number of ways. Um, At first, we were, when we didn't have any cases in Alaska, um, we were trying to figure out who we would test and by what testing criteria we would go by. The state was putting out and the CDC were both putting out criteria they wanted us to use. Um, But, you know, we're still watching the news and paying attention to what's going on medically and trying to decide what we think is appropriate. Um, So at first it was kind of ramping up the ability to test while at the same time recognizing that for most people this will be... Um, not a serious illness for most people you know the the problem is that this has a higher rate of really severe illness compared to most other respiratory viruses, but even still, most patients are or most people are going to get a mild illness so and as an emergency room, our attitude is you know if you just have a mild illness that you can stay with, we would love you to talk to your doctor and and not be coming to the emergency room for something that's not an emergency, but at first, because CDC guidelines were to treat COVID-19 as a aerosolized virus, um, the only way to test was in a negative pressure room. And so at first with the surveillance, really the only place that could do the testing was in the ER, which took a little bit for... Everyone to kind of wrap their heads around because you know we have an emergency perspective. Yeah, so the first part was just the testing part because the emergency room was the only place that could do the testing. We couldn't do outpatient testing. World Health Organization's recommendation was that COVID-19, including testing, could be done with droplet and contact precautions with it, which can be done in any setting as long as the providers have a gown, gloves, regular surgical mask and goggles. So that opened up the testing once the CDC adopted that and Providence, Alaska actually, or Providence as a system adopted that. And uh, given the experience in Seattle where they had already adopted that in front of the CDC going on WHO guidelines. Um, so then outpatient testing could start. And so that kind of relieved the ER from being the only pace that could test. Um, the preparations at the same time as the state started to have some positive cases, and even before that, just seeing what was happening in Seattle and elsewhere in the u s was what are we gonna do when we start to get a significant number of these patients um, so uh we created a section of the emergency room that is for any respiratory complaints in general, so you know, whereas before people had flu or. Other coughs would be anywhere in the ER. Um, Now we have a section of the ER that if your complaint is cough, upper respiratory kind of complaints like cough, runny nose, congestion, fever, and you're not super sick, then you will go to a section of the ER that is just for respiratory complaints because we don't want people who have mild to moderate illness mingling with the rest of the ER until we know that they don't have coronavirus. We don't want to be a place that's helping spread the virus, both to providers and also to other patients. So we have a whole section of the ER that's just for respiratory complaints. We also have some negative pressure rooms in the higher acuity section of the ER, where if a super sick person comes in, like the stories you're hearing about in other parts of the world, You know, usually older, usually comorbidities, but not always. Um, Then we have a safe place both for providers and the rest of the ER for those patients to go in. And then there's all the preparation on how do we test? Do we recommend, you know, the mild illness people go to an outpatient testing and then we order it for them and help facilitate that? Uh, Because doing a test in the ER takes some time because you have to get into the appropriate protective gear to do it. So working through some of those things. And then what about when we start to see the really sick patients? Um, And because. None of us have immunity to this virus, um, we're just as concerned about providers, nurses, techs, docs, everybody who works in the ER, um, the cleaning crews, people who bring food, you know, absolutely everybody in the hospital who cycles through the ER. None of us have any immunity to this. So how do we, one, care for these patients in a safe way? And what procedures in a sick patient need to have extra precautions? So we've been working on protocols for what happens when EMS brings us in someone who has CPR going, um, because it appears that in places with high incidence, like Italy and China, a decent number of their people who uh, need CPR in the field are actually COVID patients with fulminant cardiopulmonary failure, and they present as a code. Um, How do you deal with that? Because those people are, when the things that we do, like putting in a breathing tube and ventilating these people, um, we're potentially aerosolizing And that needs a higher level of protection for the providers.
1: What does that mean, aerosolizing? So in
0: general, a cough or a sneeze puts out droplets. And in general, that's what the virus is in. So in order to protect providers and other patients, um, you don't want those droplets to land on them. uh, Because then, let's say it lands on your hand and you wipe your eyes, you know, Mm -hmm. or... Um, or I'm breathing in those droplets cause I'm close to your face. So that stuff, you can protect yourself with gloves, gown, surgical mask, and goggles. So that's droplet and contact That's stuff that touches your skin. And that's stuff that you could, if it got on mucous membranes, like in your mouth, like as a physical droplet, you could get sick from it. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get sick from it touching your skin, but the the worry is that you touch it with your hands and then we touch our face, you know, rub along our eyes and pick our nose and put our fingers in our mouth, and all that stuff mucous membranes that can then invite in a respiratory virus um, That's kind of the main way that we protect ourselves against this. However, if we're pressurizing the air going into somebody's respiratory system, or we're doing chest compressions, or we're suctioning, or we're doing a nebulizer treatment, we're creating a mist of potentially virus, um, like a mist going into the air. That's considered aerosolized, so smaller particles that are not as big as a droplet. Mm -hmm. And that's what we normally treat tuberculosis as. You know, we have a very small amount of patients normally that we have to protect ourselves that way against um, suddenly there is potentially a larger cohort of people so when we're doing something like putting in a breathing tube or CPR or suction um, or anytime we're pressure breathing for someone we're potentially creating an aerosol and then you have to use what's called airborne precautions and so having a really really clear distinction between what patients do we need to treat with airborne precautions and what patients do we need? Because that is, uh takes more time to get ready for and limits who can come in and out of a room um, versus what patients do we need to treat with droplet and contact precautions versus what patients do we just need to treat like normal, which is no specific precautions. Mm-hmm. We have to have those things defined really clearly. So there's been a lot of work and thought going into that. Um, Also, when we do something like put in a breathing tube for someone um, or do CPR, normally we do things like positive pressure breathing for those people, or um, we can use a pressurized breathing mask uh, for people like which we call like CPAP or BiPAP. Anyone who has a CPAP machine at home knows kind of the concept. People who have sleep apnea. So this is this pressurized breathing device that for people with bad COPD and sometimes heart failure, we use quite often. And sometimes we use those things to bridge people from just using a mask with more oxygen to to being able to intubate them if we need to. Um, It seems that with COVID, that increases the risk to everyone else in the room. And so... That's a big change in our practice when we're having someone with an increasing requirement to assist them with their breathing. You know, normally we would go a nasal cannula, which is just the two prongs in your nose, to a face mask, to a non-rebreather, which is a different face mask, to often positive pressure ventilation like CPAP or biPAP. and then we would start to think about intubation. Or we can get somebody, you know, while we're getting set for intubation we can use something like CPAP or BiPAP to help keep their oxygen level higher while we're getting ready. With COVID, it sounds like that's not a safe way to do things. So, we're having to create protocols so that we do these things safely for both the patient and the providers.
1: What's crazy about this is it seems like we don't really know what we're dealing with.
0: Um, <laughs> at a level, we don't. And then at another level, there's, you know, we're lucky. We're coming into this a little late which is awesome Mm because then we get to prepare more right as a state you know we're super lucky we're not wuhan china or northern italy Um, so we are learning a fair bit from the experiences in other places including seattle there's been a lot of communication between seattle emergency rooms and alaska both within the provenance system and without and outside of that there's been a lot of lessons that have been learned down there you know, the protocols that we're developing are based on the lessons learned in other places.
1: How many cases do we have in Alaska as of right now?
0: So proven cases, I think last night was 14. I haven't heard any, they seem to be announcing them, you know, in the evening at the, they're having nightly press conferences with the governor and Ann Zink, the CMO, uh, and Adam Crum, head of DHSS. So it seems like at those, for the most part, that's when we hear about the new cases and it's been, it was 14 last night. Okay there's definitely more in the state like that's you know the thing i think is really important to understand is that the numbers based on proven cases and testing are a a extremely low number compared to the amount of coronavirus that's around both in the u.s and and probably even in alaska
1: and because these are the people that don't really present with life-threatening symptoms correct
0: at this point, yeah, because most people will have a mild illness, so that they're going to have a cold-like illness. And and then in the U.S., that's been complicated by a slow ramp-up of the ability to test. Mm-hmm. So the surveillance, when it was really important early on, wasn't easy to do. We benefited from being able to do that
1: a little easier here. Our protocols were a little looser than other places. You know, one thing that keeps popping into my mind is, is COVID-19 something that will just run its course? If somebody gets it that's not in that, you know, bracket of people that are uh, potentially affected by this thing more so than other people, will it just run its course like a normal flu?
0: Yeah, for most people, you know, the estimate is about 80%. um, And maybe it's even more than that because you have a lot of undiagnosed cases. Um, They will just have a normal, you know, cough and flu-like kind of thing. But the important thing is that if they don't treat this a little more carefully in terms of self-isolating, they're spreading it. It it, it spreads mm-hmm. easier than the flu. And um while most people will get a mild illness, none of us live around only people that get mild illness. So mm-hmm. um the big issue with people that with the majority of people that it's gonna go through without being a huge deal is that they also interact with other people and so the average the number that i saw out of china was the average spread was 2.3 cases per person who had it you know you're going to infect 2.3 other people
1: yeah i mean that's one of the things that's scary about this virus is that it's highly contagious which makes it spread exponentially right yeah correct you know what do you think the er will look like in
0: a week (laughs) that's a really good question i I think that it's possible we're starting to see the more serious cases, but we're um, waiting on, you know, the verification test still. Um, I think in a week, you know, we went from one to 14 cases in basically a week. Hopefully that number of increase will slow down that all the things that Alaska's done earlier than most places is going to slow that spread. Um, If we stay on an exponential growth curve in a week, things will be manageable, but I think we're going to be seeing, I think we are starting to, and then we'll continue to see sick patients who are either sick enough to be hospitalized um, because they need a little bit of oxygen supplementation, and they can be on a reticle, red, rather sorry, regular medical floor, but they need a little bit of help to get through a period of the illness. And I think we're gonna be seeing um, super sick people that need to be intubated and are in the ICU.
1: I know it's probably impossible to kind of project what it will look like in a month, but do you care to venture at all? <laughs> if If everyone does their part,
0: and we at which it feels like in general, people in Alaska have been pretty darn responsive to, and we aren't traveling, and we're staying in our home communities, and we're <laughs> the terms are all kind of funny, but if we're you know self-isolating and social distancing and doing a good job of not spreading coronavirus, then I think in a month, hopefully we have a slow increase in cases that's manageable for our hospital system here, which is a finite resource, right? Mm -hmm. Like Juno, I heard a story the other day tried to transfer someone down to Seattle and Seattle was like, you know, I'm adding to the story here, but they're, they're probably listening to the ask for a transfer and saying, you're kidding, right? Like, have you been reading the news? You know, Mm -hmm. we don't, we don't have any beds here. Um, They're right at their max and they haven't hit the peak of their illness. If we have slowed down the spread, then we'll be able to manage it with the resources that we have here. Um, If we are too late and things have spread more in our community than we think they have, then we could potentially be in a situation like them. Every ICU bed's full, and we have more sick people coming in. And I mean, the worst case scenario, which I think we're ahead of I certainly hope we're ahead of is where we're having to decide who gets a ventilator and who doesn't we have pretty amazing surge planning in the city which includes freeing up ventilators from operating rooms and things like that so I mean the people that are trying to manage the resources in this state and in the city are being quite creative with what we have Um, and the state has asked that all elective procedures and dentists and other folks who are, um, using some of the resources, take the sacrifice and stop using them so that they can be used. If things ramp up here, um, that's a huge sacrifice on those folks. end, Mm -hmm. and, and affects all the people who were hoping to have those elective procedures and their normal dental care and all that. Um, but if that works well, then We don't end up having to use too much of that surge capacity, but I mean, we could, if things don't go well, which I'm really hoping things do go well, um, we could end up overwhelmed. I mean, we're seeing that in other countries, but I,
1: I think we're ahead of it. I hope we're ahead of it. Yeah. I hope we're ahead of it as well. So we were messaging earlier today and you said that you've been one of the people pushing for travel restrictions along with social distancing. What can you tell me about that?
0: Well, so we got 14 cases in the state as of now. Um, From what I've heard, all but, I think, all but three were travel, right? Um, And at least two of those others were contacts of the, or I think all three of the others were contacts of the people that traveled. So they are all travel-related cases. So we're bringing cases into the state when, and these are Alaska residents, except for one who was a cargo, someone who worked on a cargo plane um, who was traveling in and out of Alaska. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we leave the state and then we come back, we're going to places that have a lot more of it than we do. And some of us are going to bring it back. I mean, you know, it wasn't a surprise that all of a sudden we're having cases after spring break. Mm -hmm. That was what we were all expecting.
1: You know, going off of that, there are a lot of people who are recognizing the importance of these precautions that we're taking, but there are also people who aren't recognizing that those precautions are important. They think that, you know, maybe they're not old enough to be affected or they're not compromised or sick, so they think they're not at risk. How would you respond to those people?
0: My response is that I hope you're not at risk. You know, I hope that if you get this illness, you have a mild illness, but you're going to spread it to other people. And whether that person you spread it to or the person they spread it to is at risk, you're affecting the people that are at risk. And the numbers of cases that we have at once will directly impact our ability to handle the people that are sick. So if we're going to avoid getting overwhelmed, like Northern Italy or like Seattle or New York City, then people have to do the right thing and, you know, flatten the curve, mm-hmm. like is being talked about. I medical director or help metal direct medical direct for a bunch of outdoor programs and guiding services. And one of the guide services I work with is one of the, uh, guiding companies on Denali and he was getting asked what he thought of the, the shutdown on the climbing permits for Denali and Foraker, and and he, you know, the Colby's the owner of Alaska Mountaineering School with his wife Caitlin, and they're great, totally responsible people, and he, is super clear that it's really hard on them business wise, but most of those climbers are coming from elsewhere, and if we have a normal climbing season we're going to bring in a whole bunch of illness that will then spread more around Alaska. And that's true with all tourism, unfortunately. I mean, this is super hard on all these businesses. We understand that Mm -hmm. it's it's horrible, really, uh, economically. But if we if we don't do our part and minimize our travel and if we continue to invite more people to come to our state, which is an amazing place to share, We will continue to bring in more cases in the meantime we have cases here and they're going to spread but if they spread slowly we can manage it
1: have you ever worked under these conditions before with something that's like this potential kind of impending virus like something from a movie no man
0: (laughs) yeah i wasn't one of those people that was gutsy enough to go work in africa during ebola i mean fortunately this is nothing like ebola but the way that Ebola is so horrible and so serious so quickly, that's why it can be contained more easily. But no, I'm too wimpy to put myself at that kind of risk. And there are some amazing people that went over there um, and who lived there and, and took care of that epidemic. I've never done anything like that. I mean, really what we're seeing now, I don't think we've seen since the Spanish flu in 1918 or maybe you know one of the other rounds of a really bad flu. but. No.
1: <laughs> so I heard that the CDC just said that ER staff uh, have the go ahead to make their own face masks. So people are wearing bandanas in the ER.
0: Yeah, I hope we don't have to do that.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Where we are, but we do have protocols on how to re—you know what—how we can extend the life of face masks, So. Uh, we're wearing face shields over a regular surgical face mask so that if you do get droplets, they're hitting the face shield and not the face mask so that you can reuse that face mask. And mm-hmm. then you can clean the face shield. Yeah, we've developed protocols to extend the life of what we do have. I'm hoping we don't get to where they're at in Seattle. In Seattle, it sounds like that's happening.
1: You know, Andy, that, that does it for my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Just that this
0: is wild. Like, we are definitely living... Through something that, um, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there, epidemiologists and infectious disease people that said one day this is going to happen and it's happening. And for the people that don't believe that this is real, I don't know what I can do to convince them, but it's real. And I I really can't stress enough that it's not necessarily about the risk that you personally have. It's about the fact that if you get this, you're going to spread it. And you want to minimize that completely. And that's that's the mm-hmm. impact that young, healthy people will have on the community if they decide to not go with the guidelines. I've been pretty impressed with, in general, how well the state has managed it and how well the muni has managed it. I would love to see the airports be shut down, except for cargo and essential travel. I would love to see that be a mandate as opposed to... A and ask, but um, Mm -hmm. maybe we need to ease into that. And I'm not sure why nationally that's not being recognized. Um, But I truly hope that because we were later in this pandemic, we have gotten a better handle on what we need to do and when we need to do it. And uh, hopefully that works and we are able to manage this as it moves through our community, which it's just plain going to do.
1: Well, and we're seeing it with how Mayor Berkowitz is responding to it. I uh, took a nap earlier today and woke up to a Nixle alert on my phone, and it says that emergency order issued by mayor requires municipal residents to stay home as much as possible. So beginning beginning at 10 p.m. on Sunday, tomorrow, March 22nd, Residents of the municipality of Anchorage must stay at home as much as possible, except to work in certain critical jobs to get food and supplies, to receive or provide health care, and to recreate outside without contacting others. On the limited occasions when individuals leave home, they should remain a distance of at least six feet from anyone outside their household.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... If you look at other cities, it's happening a lot earlier here. And I think for some folks that makes it harder to feel like it's appropriate. But if you wait until things are out of control, then it doesn't really do its job. Um, looking at Wuhan, yeah, they, did, they flattened their curve when they instituted travel restrictions and social distancing restrictions. Um, but they did it way late. And that was, that's why things got as bad as it did there. And if you look at Italy, they thought they were doing these things early enough, but they didn't and things, you know, that's a a nation that's been completely overwhelmed by their caseload. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really, I think that that may, you know, it may need tweaks as to what businesses can be open and what businesses can't and it may need some work but i i really think it's good that things are happening on the earlier end here this isn't gonna just skip us it's not gonna go by alaska and keep going to some other part of the world you know this is a virus that speds through humans and we're human Mm -hmm. so it's pretty wild but i think that they're i think they're doing the right thing i really do um and i really feel for the people you know i have a lot of friends who work in lot of industries other than healthcare, and i feel super lucky i have a job it's kind of a crazy time that way
1: mm-hmm. yeah a lot of people are getting laid off
0: yeah yeah and i i really hope that our state and our municipality and our federal government help those folks out as best they can and um and i hope that people stay safe and stay healthy and i also think i'm really glad that the mayor that our directive recognized that being outdoors is key to life especially here Mm -hmm. um and I just really hope that people are able to despite the hard things that they're handling right now I really hope they're able to get some endorphins in their lives and I think it's super important we have this sort of all of a sudden our whole social world's to a degree been taken away from us and our work worlds and all that and I think getting outside and recreating with appropriate six foot spacing and, you know, doing the things that you need to do socially in a way that's safe um, and having positive relationships and families and all that stuff's going to be incredibly, this isn't going to go away next week. This is going to be a while. We're looking at months and um, doing what we can to take care of ourselves is going to be super important.
1: For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Music was produced by Alcota Beats.